Well, there's a lot of different watches out there. Uh, you can get Seiko watches, Gucci watches, I'll probably pronounce that wrong, so I'm sorry, uh, Pulsar watches, even Versace watches. But perhaps the, at the top of the watch tree is the Rolex watch. Uh, they're famous for their quality, their precision, and their price. Uh, as one reviewer said, the Rolex watch is a status symbol. It's the Rolls Royce of all watches. If you have a Rolex, you probably have money. It tells others that you have it. Now, not surprisingly, there's actually a lot of uh, fake Rolexes out there because most people can't afford one, but lots of people want one. Uh, and there are stores that openly say that they sell fake Rolexes. But, of course, there are those who try and uh, sell fake Rolexes but pass them off as the genuine article. Now, there's only one thing worse, I reckon, than thinking that you have a genuine Rolex watch only to have someone point out to you that it's a fake. And that's to have a genuine Rolex watch, but to have someone convince you that it's a fake and so you give it away. Being tricked out of owning the real thing. You had the genuine article all along, but you gave it away because someone smooth-talked you out of it. Now, this sort of tragedy is at the heart of Galatians uh, chapters 3 and 4, the bits we're up to this morning. Paul is at pains to point out to the Galatians that in Christ they have the real deal. And he's doing that because there's some people out there telling them that there's a better model. There's a better model of the gospel out there that, that sure, Jesus is okay, but have you got the law as well? Uh, if Jesus was a watch, then they're saying to the Galatians, Jesus, he's a psycho, but don't you want a Rolex, guys? Don't you want a Rolex? The Galatians were being offered a so-called better gospel. But as Paul points out, they're being tricked into giving away the real deal. Because the fact of the matter is, uh, if you belong to Jesus, then you have the top of the range. You're not second class when you have your faith in Christ. He is as good as it gets, which is a great reminder for you and I. Uh, in Christ, we have the real deal from God himself. And it's true for everyone that has their faith in Christ. We all enjoy the same extraordinary goodness from God, which means God's given us a real solidarity with one another. And it's a solidarity we should be quick to express. But more of that in a little bit. First, Paul needs to demolish yet again the false gospel in order to clear the way for him to be able to tell them the true gospel. Hopefully you remember uh, from the past couple of weeks that the false gospel that was going around at the time of the Galatians was that, yes, you needed your faith in Christ, but you also needed to keep the Old Testament law. Uh, you needed to uh, have both those things in order to be right with God. It was faith plus law. Now, last week, Paul demolished uh, this gospel by pointing out that uh, just faith in Christ brings God's blessing, whereas the law brings God's curse. You might remember chapter 3, verse 10, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And so the law automatically put people under God's curse. Now that raises the question, well then why have the law? If all it's going to do is put you under his God's curse, what's its purpose? Why would you have it? Well, Paul's very clear that the law did serve a purpose. And that the law is a good thing, as long as you use it for what it was meant to do. Uh, you can use a chainsaw to have a shave, but that's very dangerous. 
Uh, they're great for chopping down trees. They're no good for having a shave. Well, the law, using the law the wrong way, that's dangerous. And we've seen that the last couple of weeks. So what is it good for? What is it good for? Well, the law had two purposes. And uh, the first purpose of the law was to highlight sin. Uh, God gave his promises to Abraham. And 400 or so years later, the law was added. He gave his law through Moses. And the law was added because of sin. That is to highlight it to show it, to make people aware of their sin. Have a look, chapter 3 and verse 19. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. That little phrase there, it was added because of transgressions, it simply means it was added to show people their sin. The law is a little bit like a magnifying glass. Uh, if you've got a jumper and it's a little bit dirty, uh, you can see the dirt, can't you, with your naked eye. But if you look at the dirt under a magnifying glass, well, the magnifying glass doesn't increase the number of uh, dirty spots on your jumper. The, the magnifying glass doesn't increase the intensity of the, the dirtiness of the spots, but the magnifying glass does make them stand out more clearly, doesn't it? And you can see more of the dirt than you could before. Well, the law does a similar job on anyone who looks at trying to obey God. Because as you try and measure yourself up to God's law, you just become more and more aware of how hopeless you are at keeping it. The law, in the end, it highlights your sin and it charges you with guilt. Uh, on your outline are a couple of verses from Deuteronomy that show this, show us this from the law itself. Uh, if you can remember the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is uh, with the people. They're about to enter into the promised land and he's uh, encouraging them to obey God, uh, reminding them of all that God's done for them. But Moses knows that when they go into the land, they're going to get it wrong, that they're going to disobey God. And so he tells them, look, make sure you put the book of the law right next to the ark so that you'll have a witness against you to show you your guilt. So it reads Deuteronomy 31. Uh, Verse 26, take this book of the law and place it beside the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God. There it will remain as a witness against you, for I know how rebellious and stiff-necked you are. This was the first purpose of the law. It was to highlight people's sin. It was added because of sin to testify to people's sinfulness. Now this actually sounds a little bit strange, I reckon. Because at first glance, this sounds as if God's law is actually against God himself. Uh, If you can remember from last week, uh, the promises of God bring righteousness and blessing. But here, the law of God magnifies sin. So does that mean that God's law and God's promises are opposed to each other? Well, that's the very question that Paul was asked. Uh, And his answer was very clear, absolutely not. God's law and God's promises aren't fighting against each other. In fact, Paul will tell us, they complement each other. Uh, They're actually on the same team. They're both on about people being justified by faith. Think about the promises. Uh, This is what we saw last week in uh, earlier in chapter 3. God gave his promises to Abraham. Abraham believed the promises and was justified. And for us, as we put our faith in the one who fulfilled those promises, as we put our faith in Jesus... God justifies us as well. The promises are all about people being justified by faith. 
Now, the law is also about people being justified by faith. It just goes about it in a different way. The law doesn't highlight how to be justified. God's law highlights how not to be justified so that we'll get it right. The law condemns us in sin as it holds up to us the demands of God. The law declares the whole world is a prisoner of sin, that everyone is guilty and that we're trapped in it. And so the law shouts out to us, you cannot justify yourself. You cannot make yourself right before God. And the law also leads us to Christ because he is the one who can justify us so that we'll put our faith in him and not in ourselves. This is the second purpose of the law. It's to lead us to Christ. Have a look at verse 21. Verse 21, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. In other words, the law traps us in sin, so that we won't trust ourselves to be justified before God, and the law traps us in sin so that we will put our trust in Jesus Christ to justify us. It's a little bit like those signs that you see when uh, you go for a bushwalk. Uh, The path you're walking on, it might be near a cliff, Uh, it's getting a little bit dangerous, and every now and again there's a sign that says, stay away from the edge, stick to the path. Uh, To keep you safe, the sign says two things, what not to do and what to do. Stay away from the edge, stick to the path. That's just like the law. The law is telling us two things to keep us safe. What not to do? Don't try and justify yourself with the law. Don't try it. It doesn't work. And it also tells us what to do. Put your faith in the Christ to be justified. Because that's the point of the law. That's its purpose, to lead us to Christ. Verse 23. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. That's the purpose of the law, to lead us to Christ, because he can justify us. So the law highlights our sin. It convinces us that we cannot trust ourselves to be justified before God And it also leads us to the one who can justify us, Jesus Christ. And so that we would rely on him instead. Because by his death and resurrection in the place of sinners, Christ can justify. He can declare us innocent before God. Now why is Paul hammering away at this? Why is he spending so long in spilling this out? What difference does this make? Well, we need to remember the situation in the Galatian church at the time to be able to make sense of this. Remember, Paul's come, preached the gospel of Christ crucified. The Galatians put their faith in Christ crucified and uh, to, to justify them before God. But then some people come along and convince them that they need to keep the Old Testament law as well as put their trust in Christ. And so the Galatians had been persuaded into thinking that they weren't the real deal when it came to being one of God's people. They'd made an okay start. You know, Jesus is okay. But there was still more to be done. They needed the law as well to be the real deal as God's people. And so uh, they were being convinced that when it came to being one of God's people, they were a bit half-baked and they needed more. Well, it's into that rot 
that Paul's hammering away, uh, highlighting that the law can't be right in terms of getting us justified because the law just leads us to Christ. The law was anticipating the Christ. The law was drooling over the prospect of the Christ. And so now that the Christ has come, well, why would you turn to the law? But not only that, if you belong to Christ, Paul says, well, then you've got everything. You're not missing anything in Christ. You are the real deal. Have a look at verse 25. Verse 25. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You see, if you have faith in Christ, then you've been made into a son of God. By belonging to Christ, you are an heir of the promises of God. And to receive these things from God doesn't depend on whether you keep the Old Testament law or not. It doesn't depend on whether you're a Jew or not. Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, it doesn't matter. Faith in Christ is what matters. And everyone that has faith in Christ, they are sons of God. They are heirs of God. If you belong to Christ, you're the real deal. You're not half-baked. You've got it all. Now, as a quick aside, it's actually worth noting the way that Paul calls everyone with faith in Christ a son of God. Uh, we need to be clear, he's not turning uh, women into men here uh, or girls into boys. Uh, he's, not, he's definitely not saying it's better to be a man than a woman. He's not saying that. Uh, all Paul's picking up on is the fact that uh, to, be the, to be a son is to be an heir. Uh, in ancient times, the boys got the inheritance and the girls, they, they got married off into another family and they shared in the inheritance of their husband. Uh, so to be the son was to be the heir, the heir of, of, of your parents. And so uh, ladies and uh, girls, uh, my sisters in Christ, you don't, want, you don't want to lose the title of being a son of God. You want to be a son of God because that means you're an heir of God's kingdom. Uh, that, this is uh, what it, in part what it means for Jesus to be the son of God. Uh, it means that Christ is the one who will inherit God's kingdom, the Father's kingdom. Now when you and I are given Christ's spirit, then we are made sons of God, which means we will inherit God's kingdom as well. Uh, this is ridiculous if you think about it, that we will inherit God's kingdom along with Christ. And Paul's got even more to say on it. So skip down to verse 4 of chapter 4. Verse 4 of chapter 4. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. If your faith is in Christ, you're a son of God. In other words, you are an heir of all of God's kingdom. You've been given the spirit of God. And all of this is given to all of those who have their faith in Christ. So to just have your faith in Christ is not to be half-baked. It's to be the real deal. 
as one of God's people. To have your faith in Christ means you get to call on God as Father. There's no such thing as a second-class Christian. Now, for the Galatian church, this would have been fantastic news. Remember, there's people trying to convince them that they're second-rate, that they had Christ, sure, but what about keeping the law? Well, it's just been blown out of the water. Everyone who has faith in Christ has everything. You can be Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, rich or poor, popular or unpopular, cool or nerdy, old or... It doesn't matter because we all come to him in faith and he gives us all the same spirit. He makes us all his sons. We're all made into the heirs of God and it's all in the same way, trusting in Christ to give it all to us. No one is better than anyone else. Everyone relying on Christ. This is wonderful news, isn't it? There's an incredible solidarity in being among the people of God. As we look around this room, as I will spend morning tea together in a little while, none of us are more special or more important than anyone else. There's no class system among the people of God. And we need to, to be, just to like take a little bit of stock to, to realize that this is very, very different to what the world around us says. Uh, the world is always differentiating people based on what they do, how they look, what they can achieve. At school, uh, to, be pop, uh, to be popular, you've got to be good looking. Uh, it's probably going to be helpful if you're uh, decent at sport and it's okay to be smart but not too much. But look, if you don't, if you don't have these things, you can easily find yourself on the outer. Uh, you can even find yourself being picked on because you're second class. But we play these games when we're adults, don't we? Uh, we can be quick to judge a person by the way they look. Uh, the way someone dresses, it, it influences the way that we treat people. We're more likely to respect people uh, when they're well-dressed and articulate. Uh, the rich in this world, uh, they find it much easier to get attention and respect than the poor. At work, we distinguish between people based on what they can do. Uh, those who are more capable are given more responsible and more difficult jobs. They get paid more. Now, there's a pecking order at work. And look, I'm not saying that there aren't differences among people. I'm not saying that all jobs should be get paid the same amount. I'm not saying people aren't better at certain things than others. I guess all I'm trying to point out is, is that in our world, we class people all the time. There's a pecking order in every crowd. We do this all the time. And so the danger we face is that we'll transfer that here in our church family. Because there's a lot of different things about us. We're not all the same. We can all do different things. And some of us are better at things than others. And some of us are male. And some of us are female. Some of us are old. Some of us are young. Some of us are rich and some are poor. Some are well-educated, some are not so. Some have happy marriages, some don't. Some aren't even married at all. Some of us have little troubles in life, some of us have many. Some of us have been Christians for decades, some of us have been Christians for months. But none of it, none of it means that anyone is better than anyone else. As Paul says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You are all one in Christ. There is a beautiful solidarity and equality in being among God's people. 
this year as our goal in an early church. If you can remember, it, our goal is to connect to build. And that's actually a really good goal for us to have, isn't it? Because if we're all sons of God, well then we really are a church family united by blood, the blood of the Lord Jesus. And so we do well to get to know one another, to connect, to build each other up in our knowledge and in our love and in our service of our King. And that's why we keep encouraging each other to make the most of morning tea uh, each Sunday to work hard at meeting new people, even if you've both been part of early church for a while. Uh, because of our solidarity in Christ, we're here for each other. Uh, we're here to spur one another on, to support one another as we live for the glory of God, uh, not to duck out of church as soon as we can, but to be here for each other. Because our solidarity in Christ means that everyone is looking after everyone. There's no one better or worse than anyone else. There's no one more important than anyone else. Uh, we can't point to anyone and think that they deserve help more than anyone else or that I'll only help that person if there's no one else I need to help. Uh, we're all one in Christ. We're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And our solidarity in Christ also means, I think, that we shouldn't be embarrassed to share our struggles with one another. Uh, we shouldn't have to worry about people thinking that we're a bit of a dud Christian because of the things we're struggling with because there's no pecking order that we're trying to climb here at church. We've got no need to impress anybody because we're all one in Christ. And so there should be an incredible safety amongst God's people as uh, we, we're here to help one another. We're not going to look down on each other. We're not going to think less of one another. We're here for each other. And so if by the grace of God you are currently enjoying relative stability and strength as one of God's people. That just means you're well-placed to help those of us who are struggling and doing it tough because we're all one in Christ. We're all here for everyone because for those of us who trust in the Lord Jesus, we have all been made into the sons of God. We have all been given the Spirit of God. We have all been made an heir of God through Christ by his spirit, we all call on God as Father. And so we're one in Christ. We're a church family in beautiful equality, free to look after one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you that uh, at the right time he came and uh, died to redeem us, that we might be your sons, that we might be the uh, heirs of your promises, that you would give us your Holy Spirit, that we could call you Father. Father, thank you for the solidarity that this brings, for the equality that we enjoy. And so, Father, we pray that as uh, a church family, we would do well at looking after one another, being quick to express our solidarity and to help and spur each other on in love and good deeds as we wait for your Son, the Lord Jesus, to come and take us home. And we pray that that day would be soon. Amen.